All right, for um, announcements, remember the Chafer Conference starts in little over a month. Little over a month, and that means that we need to start preparing now in a lot of different ways. And so we need 60 dozen homemade cookies. Those pastors come here, they just graze through the cookies. So um, they don't all have to be homemade, but it's really nice if a lot of them are. And there's a sign-up sheet in the fellowship hall. Also, this Saturday, we're having our men's prayer breakfast, so you need to uh, make sure you're here at 7.30. And we're continuing our study on how should we then live, and that has been a real eye-opener for a lot of people in terms of just understanding the historical flow, how we got where we are today. Then on Sunday, we're having our annual congregational meeting immediately following the morning service. Uh, Everyone's welcome to attend. We need a 50% quorum of membership. Uh, So if you're a member, please make every effort to be here. And then there's still some items in the empty classroom in the front next to uh, Aunt Pookie's that if you'd like to go look at them and see if there's something you'd like to have, you may take it with you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are walking by the Spirit and prepared to focus upon the Word of God, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we can be here this evening that we can focus upon you, focus upon your Word Be reminded about what you have done in creation and that as our creator, you have designed us a specific way, male and female, both in the image of God. And in paganism, there is an absolute destruction of these distinctions and a desire to just make everything uh, fluid. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these issues that we may be able to Communicate those who are our loved ones in our families, in our uh, periphery who are believers to help them as well understand how to face and uh, deal with the culture around us as it goes through uh, uh, an implosion. Father, we pray that you'd open our understanding tonight to these things that we study in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, one thing that I did not mention in my prayer We did send out a prayer request last week for Tad Boyle. Tad is the pastor of, I think it's Pensacola. No, it's, uh, what is it? Bible Church, Tallahassee Bible Church. And he is doing quite well. He had his uh, quadruple bypass on Monday, yesterday, and he's doing uh, very well as a result of that. Tad was ordained at uh, North Dallas Bible Church up in Dallas. He and I were classmates. Uh, at Dallas Seminary, and he has been uh, very consistent in his uh, ministry there uh, in Tallahassee. So uh, it's good that uh, the Lord has kept him here to continue his uh, faith, faithful ministry. Also, I've talked to Jim Myers, two or three other people in Ukraine today, and they all said it's calm. It's just everything is normal. So may not be normal next week or the next week or the next week. We don't know. We just have to trust the Lord and keep keep doing what God has called 
us to do. So, tonight, Corinthian confusion. Corinthian confusion. And we are going to look at how in paganism they do exactly what Israel did because Israel in the Old Testament in the book of Judges was imitating the uh, Canaanites around them, the pagans around them. And that's what we've been studying. But we got to a point where we needed to take a look at the issue of the role that God has for men and women in light of what took place with the leadership of Deborah as a judge and prophetess, not a teacher but or a pastor, but as a judge or prophetess because those who wish to claim that men and women are interchangeable, those who are on the uh, feminist, radical feminist side of evangelicalism always bring that up. So it is an appropriate place to stop and see what God teaches about the role of men and women and limitations thereof. And everyone today wants to do what's right in their own eyes. They, do, they want to reject all absolutes, reject all uh, barriers, reject any kind of morality that comes from Christianity. That's really what it is. They want some sort of structure, but they don't want a biblical structure. They don't want God. Romans one twenty five says that this is typical of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and what they've done is they've exchanged the truth of God uh, for a lie. And that's what we see all around us, family members, loved ones, friends. We see people in high positions of authority and both sides of the political aisle who are just doing what seems right to them. And they are worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And so all of this boils down to the fact that you're technically, you're worshiping the creation. That's how it should be translated, as I've pointed out here. And those who, who worship the creation see the creation as all participating in the same life force, as it were, the same being. That's what I mean when I'm talking about being or essence. And so God's at the top. He's got more of that life force than anybody else. But everything has some of it. And so you have, according to them, everybody has a little spark of divinity. And so we're all good because we've got a little bit of God's life force in each one of us. And that is known as monism. And it's, it's most evident in religious beliefs such as Hinduism. But it is what runs through paganism. It's exactly what, what goes on in, with Israel. They're constantly struggling with what? The worship of the nature gods. Baal is the god of rain and thunder, fertility, productivity, the Asherah, goddess of love and productivity and fertility, and all these. And they're worshiping that so that they can have productivity and fertility. And basically what they want is prosperity. It's just the Old Testament version of the heresy of the prosperity gospel that we have. And you see from that how that has infiltrated so many churches. It's infiltrated Christianity. And many Christians just think that, you know, if you just give enough, God's going to bless you and give it all back to you and all other kinds of works. But it's just pure pagan, pagan thought. So I've talked about monism. And we've defined that, that what we have all around us is different forms of pagan uh, monism. But biblical Christianity sees that there is a stark contrast that in biblical Christianity and biblical Judaism, as opposed to ritualistic or pharisaical Judaism, which is really what Orthodox Judaism is, you have on the one hand in the Bible, the creator God, who is a personal infinite God, who is totally distinct from his creation. And he created a finite universe and all that's in it, mankind, animals, vegetation, matter, energy, everything that's in the creation was created by God. And he is dis totally distinct and separate from it. And to worship anything in the creation, whether it's Mother Earth, whether it's the environment, whether it is some sort of idol made out of silver or gold or wood, is paganism, and it's worshiping the creation. And that belongs on the right side of that diagram. 
the infinite personal universe is described, everything goes within that uh, circle. There's not anything outside of that circle. It's the whole universe. It's God, it's man, it's nature. And that's just the one-ism of monism. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about the impact of sin on males and females. Because when you look at what's going on in monism, its ultimate distinctive is to destroy all barriers. There's no real barriers between or distinctives between the kinds and between all these other things. And so you can be a male one year, one day, female the next, in one of 120 different genders uh, another day. And th- they're just really making that up. They're living in a d- totally divorced from reality. That's what paganism does. It takes you completely away from understanding uh, understanding reality. So what we've done is we looked at Genesis one twenty six to 28, which states that God created the human race, male and female, he created them, and he created them male and female in his image, equally in his image. But second point was that equality doesn't mean interchangeability. There is a hidden agenda in the interchangeability doctrine that uh, that is part of paganism, and it is to destroy any kinds of distinctives and to destroy anything that comes from God. It is a satanic plot. And it, it, to destroy the differences between men and women is to destroy the family. It is de- It will destroy the marriage, and it destroys... Uh, personal responsibility. It, it, it is responsible for removing those first three foundational divine institutions from culture. We looked at Genesis two sixteen to 25, that there is an order in the creation. God created the man first, and then he created the woman from the side of the man, and that that indicates that she has a distinct role. She was created to be a helper, an assistant to the man, which is not a position of inferiority. Remember, Jesus talks about uh, the greatest one is the servant of all, and that God is often described as the helper or assistant of man using that same uh, that same word. And so it is a place of honor, and but it shows teamwork. Right now we're on the height of the football season, and and uh, if you were watching a football game on uh, over the weekend I, on Sunday, I guess it was when Cincinnati was playing Kansas City, and at first it looked like Kansas City was going to win, and then Cincinnati came back from behind, and it was just a tight game. But what made them successful was teamwork. And not everybody plays the same role. And just because they can't uh, pass as well as the quarterback and they can't uh, run as well as a running back or run as fast as as one of the uh, ends when they catch a pass doesn't mean they're any less significant or important to the to the team. And yet that's this that's the bogus package that the radical feminists and the LGBTQ crowd and everybody else wants to sell the public is that uh, we're totally interchangeable. That's their foundation. And that is not what we learn from the Bible. Genesis 3.15 shows the effect that sin has on role distinctions, that it creates a competition in the soul between the man and the woman. The woman wants to dominate the man, and the man wants to return the favor. And so apart from, uh, if you're not a believer, apart from just learning good manners to control your arrogance, then you're not going to have a solution. But the only real solution comes from having uh, the Word of God in your soul so that you can understand your, your distinctive role and how your sin nature has certain proclivities and to avoid that. Now we're coming to our last two parts to this subseries, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 this week, and then next week, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 15. What we concluded last time after we looked at uh, Genesis 3, uh, 15 and following is that because of sin, life is corrupted. 
Our souls are corrupted. Our desires are corrupted. Our relationships, our responsibilities, everything in life is corrupted by sin. And the only solution starts with the redemption solution. Only when you have two people come together in a marriage that are both saved and walking with the Lord do you have a hope of being able to overcome and reverse the consequences of sin. The fact of sin does not remove God's design for the roles and functions within his plan. It doesn't eradicate the image of God. It just <coughs> it just effaces it. It distorts it. But it's still there. And when we are saved, what comes next? We are growing unto the image of Christ. That's the goal, is to make us Christ-like. So we see that men and women are equally in the image of God still, yet they are designed for different roles and functions. But sin has corrupted our understanding and it corrupts our biology, and so we get very confused. And this is what happens in paganism. It attempts to redefine the meaning of male and female. So that brings us to a fun passage. It is a difficult passage and because there's a lot of people who don't like the implications that are here. Same with the next passage we go to. They don't want to take what it says and as just straightforward. But we have to understand that there are these role distinctions, and this, these are the two broadest passages in the New Testament. So what I want to do is to just take some time to read through these verses and then just ask some questions of the text. Now, before I get there, I think I want to say something about Corinth. Corinth was like Vegas in the, in the ancient world. It was a combination of a port city like Houston and Las Vegas, where what st- happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. You had every kind of perversion, every kind of everything that could possibly appeal to anybody's lust pattern was all there. It was situated uh, on a harbor, but near the uh, isthmus of, of, of Corinth, and you had a, a canal that was that that's dug there now that lets you go from one side of the um, uh, of of the sea on the on the east to the Aegean on the west, and this is just an amazing thing to look at. But they had all kinds of problems. When Paul writes them, the first eight or nine chapters, he is blasting, even in this chapter, he is uh, correcting their horrible behavior because they are still acting like they did before they were saved. And that's the whole point in the first part of 1 Corinthians 3 is he says that they're still acting like mere men, that is, unbelievers. They're operating on their sin nature. They're fleshly, and yet they have been regenerate, and they have the Spirit of God, but they're refusing to live that way. They're divisive. There's all kinds of factions within the uh, churches in Corinth. There's all kinds of problems. Uh, there's, um, they're taking um, each other to court, They've got one individual who's married his stepmother, which is prohibited by both uh, the law of the Gentiles as well as the Mosaic law, and yet they're not bothered by it. They're acting as if, well, Christ died for sin, so I guess we can just do anything we want to now since the penalty's paid for. They were truly antinomian, not any different from the Israelites back in the book of Judges or our culture today. And they had every kind of sin going on there. So uh, it's, it's illustrative. And the sin of rebellion is at the core of all other sins, this uh, reaction uh, and rebellion against authority, which is at the core of what this passage is really talking about. So let me just read it through. 
Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man is not from the woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's the key verse. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as a woman came from man, even so man also comes through a woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. That last verse is interesting. I could paraphrase that. If anyone wants to argue about this, we don't have any history of doing it any other way in the church, period. Now, let's just kind of walk our way through this a little bit to point out some things, some initial observations. First of all, the word translated head in verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5 is all the same word. It is the Hebrew word, I mean the Greek word uh, kephale, which has two meanings. It refers to the physical head, which sits atop your shoulders, and it refers to authority. Now, in English, we have another way in which we use the word head is the head of a river, the source of a river. That is possibly, some scholars say there's possibly one or two places where it's used that way in Greek, but most scholars say no. It's not used that way at all anywhere in the Greek, and there have been a large number of, um, a large number of studies that have been published to demonstrate that. I always remember when I talk about this, one time Wayne House was asked to debate one of the most outspoken evangelical feminists at a Presbyterian college um, up in Washington State. This was back in the 70s. And so at one point when she was talking about, oh, this word head means source, like the source of a river, all that saying is that the woman was taken from the side of man and so... Uh, the woman uh, is, has her source in the man. And Wayne reached in his briefcase and pulled out a printout of every use of the word kephale in Greek and said, would you please point out in here where that word is ever used to refer to source, which was a great debater's ploy, but he was right. There, there are none, and I don't think his opponent... Could uh, To her, it was all Greek, even if it was in Hebrew or Aramaic. She wouldn't know the difference. But that's one thing to illustrate here is that this is talking about authority in that word head. And it's also talking about authority when we get down to um, 
Verse 10, for this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's talking not about her husband, but about her physical head because of the angels. Now, another interesting thing is that when it starts talking about head in verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, I checked a number of translations this afternoon, and they nearly all follow that. But literally, what that says is uh, according to the head. Every man praying or prophesying according to the head dishonors his head. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in English. So it's probably an idiom that has that same sense of of uh, having his head un- uncovered. We'll look at that as we go through here. But the contrast is with the uh, woman in the next verse, verse 5, but every woman who prays, notice it starts with a contrast, but, so it's contrasting the man with the woman, and the woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered uh, dishonors her head. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. So that word for uncovered, we'll see these words later, is a Greek word, akatakaluptas. The A at the beginning is equivalent to our prefix un, U-N. Or if you're talking about uh, something that's movable and that's not movable, then it's immovable. So it's that kind of a prefix. And katakaluptas has to do with covering. Akatakaluptas is uncovered. So it is that uh, uh, contrast between what the man's condition, which is uh, his head's covered, and the woman is it's uncovered. Now, somebody's going to ask me about praying or prophesying. Prophesying, as we've studied has a couple of different meanings in the Old Testament. One is singing, and I would say also writing uh, writing music or writing the uh, uh, words to the music. But it is, that is not the same. It, a prophecy is being a mouthpiece through whom God speaks. So you're not interpreting what God's, God means, you're just saying, this is what God said. Don't ask me what it means. Their role, the role of the prophet was to say, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord. And it was not wrong in the Old Testament. You have prophetesses like Miriam and Deborah and Huldah. Huldah we don't know anything about, but both Miriam and Deborah were involved and associated with the writing or the singing of a psalm. Praying. So what we will see when we look at all of this is there's nothing in the Scripture that prohibits women from praying in the congregation. I mean, all of this is within the setting of the congregational, congregational worship. There's nothing that's negative about a woman praying or prophesying, or a man. Now, prophecy today is no longer in effect, as we saw this last Sunday morning. So that's not an issue, only praying. But there are ways that she should pray. So some people take the covering to be a veil or a shawl or something like that. And um, uh, Jim Myers told me a while back, that there's a large group of Plymouth brethren down in Brazil who have ha- listened to me and that it really upset the women when I took the position that the head covering was not a physical head covering like a veil or a hat or a scarf or something something like that. I had, um, I had a friend of mine that I'd gone to seminary with that was in my church in Dallas back in the late 80s. And he and his wife came out of a Plymouth Brethren background, and she always wore the most uh, 
stylish hats and scarves, and I never gave it a second thought that the reason that she did that was because that was how they understood this passage. Uh, so you have a number of uh, of Christians who take that that view, and as I go through this, I'm going to show why I don't think that that is what it is talking about. So it's this uh, contrast between the man has no covering, and that is recognition uh, that he is under the authority of Christ, and the woman has a covering, and that is um, that is her recognition, and that it's going to be hair, and I think that becomes pretty clear as we go through go through this. Third thing I observe is that uh, in eleven six, if the woman is not covered. Uh, and there you have kata, kata lupto and the negative, which is the same as a kata lupto. Um, if it's equal to being uncovered, if a woman is not covered, the contrast is that she's shorn. And the word in the in the Greek means that that she just has all of her hair cut off like a shorn sheep, and that it is shameful for a woman to have to be shorn and uh, are shaved, and that she's to be covered. So you've got to see that that relationship there between the covering is related to the presence or lack of presence of hair. And then fourth, the man was not to cover his hair, and that's going to be related, not to cover his head, and that's going to be related to his having hair. Now, some men don't have it. As one guy told me once, God created a few perfect heads and the rest he covered with hair. But the hair is to recognize authority if it's there. So verse is 8 and 9 then, for a man is not from woman, but a woman from man, nor was man created for the woman, but woman for man. Those two verses are an explanation. The four at the beginning tells us it's explaining this, uh, the uh, in, in seven, rather, excuse me, in seven, it starts with a four, and in eight, it starts with another four. Those fours are explaining this previous principle that we studied in four, five, and six. For, a man, for indeed, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For, and this is explaining that second part, for man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Now, this is really interesting here because what this does is it takes it back to creation as the basis for his views. It's not based in Corinthian culture. It's not based in Greek culture. It's not based on Roman culture. He base, And he's not basing it on Jewish culture. He's basing it on the fact that that God created the man first and the woman was taken from the man. And so there's a distinction made there. The sixth, um, the explanation in verse 9 goes back to the purpose for creation as well. Nor was the man created for the woman, but the woman created for the man in order to be his helper, his assistant. Without her, she cannot achieve God's goal, God's plan for his life. That's that's why she's so important. Then in verse, uh, then the um, seventh point is that the for this reason in verse 10 is further explanation that for this reason, that is because of the, her role in distinction from the man's role, it's emphasizing the issue of authority and that this is a testimony to the angels. Now, what was the big problem with the angels? The big problem with the angels was that Satan rebelled against God's authority. The fundamental issue of sin is authority, the authority of God to create reality and to define reality and those who rebel against him are trying to create their own reality now in verse 11 this is the eighth point it introduces another 
contrasting statement, usually translated uh, nevertheless or however, and it says neither male nor female is independent of the other. That's a radical statement in the Greek world. The man wanted to be have all the independence and the woman had none. And so he's, Paul says, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man. Now, the words that are used here for man and woman are the words that mean male and female or can mean husband and wife. But it's pointing out that, that man, neither man nor woman are independent of each other. There is a dependency in the, the relationship. Verse 12, we see the phrase, For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. So even though the first woman is created in a different way than the man, she is brought from the man, which shows her position of subordination to the man. All other men come through a woman. And so they are... uh, they are dependent upon a woman. So we're not independent of each other. Then in verse 13, ask the question, uh, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? This is the same word, on akatalupto. Verse 13, and that's, uh, that's verse 13. Verse 14, the 11th point, we look at verse um, verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Now, that's an interesting verse. Uh, I, you and I remember a time when Pastor Theme would talk about how men needed to have short hair back in the 70s. And there were a lot of people who got really short haircuts because that wasn't the style. I remember when I was a senior approaching my senior prom that I decided that I really was going to be a nonconformist and I got a flat top. That was going in a different direction from everybody else. Anyway... um, that was pretty typical in the 50s and 60s for men to have flat top. Now we're back to short hair. We have a lot of men who wear short hair. It's a, it's a style. These styles go in and out, but often they have a, a little more significance as it does here, as we'll see. So if a woman has, uh, if uh, nature teaches that a man has long hair, why? It, it shows, again, this shows that this is connected to this covering because what dishonors a man earlier is that he has his head covered. And now it's the long hair that's the dishonor. So you see it puts it together that that is the covering. And then in 12th point, in verse 15, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, what's interesting is that's a different word. Every place else, it's been kalupto. Here, it is not katakalupto or kalupto. It is peribolion. And peribolion has to do with a garment, a shawl. The root meaning peri is like uh, something that goes around something. It's an article of clothing that wraps or covers uh, or cloaks the body. And so it says here that her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, that's important because what we're going to see is that there were different people in the congregation, some who thought the covering ought to be, just like today, a hat, a shawl, something like that. Others who thought it was the hair, And then there were men who were actually cross-dressers, and they're dressing. They have um, feminine hairstyles, and they they are dressing like women. It was paganism, folks. We've studied what it looks like in Romans 1. We've studied it all the way through. The reason that we're having the problems we're having in our society is we've shifted it to a pagan, monistic worldview. 
and they had all the same problems that we have today. And I'm going to give you some evidence for that. But first, what's the controversy? The controversy to understand this is that in Greek paganism, there was sexual identity confusion just like today. There was same-sex perversion, and there was also cross-dressing. Nothing new under the sun. In Rome, there were also the same confusions and sexual perversions, and Paul outlines them in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Now, the basic interpretation problem here is uh, Paul talking about just a hair for the covering, hairstyle, or is he talking about a veil or a hat? Is he talking about a shawl covering? And the second question is, is this just unique to the Corinthian culture, or is this supposed to be normative for every, every culture? So I don't know if it surprises you, but in the ancient world, they had just as much of a problem with sexual identity, sexual confusion, and um, trying to figure out who they were as today. And this is the problem. So what happened then is that they basically divided up, as I'll get to in a minute, in three things. The problem is... Uh, what's Paul talking about here in terms of head covering or hair? Is he primarily addressing men or women in this passage? I believe that he's primarily addressing men, and it's addressing the problem with the women only secondarily because the men are not functioning as they should be functioning. The men are becoming effeminate and effeminized. And this is the same problem that Paul's going to address with Timothy when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And so here he wants to focus on the real issue of the role of the males in public worship and honoring the authorities over him. It's interesting. The history of Christianity is a history of a, of a dominant feminine female culture in most churches. In the Middle Ages, you had uh, the, the, it developed into the whole uh, culture of the, uh, of the nuns and the uh, various things because there were very, the men, men have a tendency to be too independent and to be independent of God. And the women don't have a man whose leadership they can follow. And so there's always these problems. Once we come to understand whether Paul's talking about a physical head covering such as a veil or a hat or a scarf, then we have to answer the question whether this is going to be cultural or whether this has a universal application. Now, at first glance, it seems like he's talking about a physical head covering and that women should wear physical hair covering if they're praying or prophesying in a local church and that men uh, should not. But is that related to Corinth, to Greek culture, or not? So did the Greeks wear veils? Did the women uh, wear veils? Do you see statues? Do you see portraits of Greek women wearing veils and wearing shawls over the head? Well, you don't. Uh, Greeks did not wear veils. Uh, They wore their head in a fashion that was uniquely feminine. I remember, and I've done this many times since, is walking through the various museums like the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art in uh, in New York. I've been to various uh, museums in Istanbul and in Israel and in Rome. And you just don't see pictures or portraits of Greek women uh, wearing shawls and covering their hair. Uh, But you do see a... Uh, certain hairstyles that seem to be dominant. Uh, It seems like when Paul left Corinth, they were trying to figure out how to apply some of these things, and so you end up with three groups. First was the group that just let their their hair down, both physically and and, uh, metaphorically. Uh, They were going against the typical custom of the Greeks where the women... Uh, generally wore their hair up in some sort of fashion, either braids or 
in, in a bond. This was very typical in our grandparents' generation. I remember when I was uh, a little boy that I would go spend the weekends occasionally with my grandparents, and my grandmother had hair that went far longer than her waist. And it really surprised me because when I'd always seen her where she had it braided and then coiled up or rolled up on top of her head. And that was that was pretty normal, uh, and back in that in that era, so they're trying to figure this out. So these are the women who let their hair down. The second group are the women who didn't wear veils, but they wore their hair up in coiled braids or a bun or something like that. And then the third group was the group that wore a, a shawl, something physical or some sort of veil. And you see the same thing that goes on today. So this was pretty common. And the question is, how is a woman to worship and how is a man to worship? And Paul makes these same distinctions in when we get to 1 Timothy 2, that he calls upon the men to do certain things in worship and women to do other things in worship and not to do some things in worship. What we see as we go through this is that he starts with the issue of headship, of authority in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Very interesting how he goes to the Trinity as well within this illustration. We can also translate this. I want you to know that the authority of every man is Christ. That means men, husbands, the authority over you in your marriage and in your family is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's who you're answerable to. For the wife, the authority of the woman is the man. And that's who they're answerable to. Notice there is a bit of a hierarchy here, and the head of Christ is God. So there it goes to the Trinity. There is an authority structure within the Trinity. And that's very important to understand. In the Gospels, Jesus talks about this. John 5, 19, Jesus answered and said to them, uh, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, this, that is, whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. He is in a subordinate role to the Father, but he is not less equal. He is identical in his essence. John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. He is under the authority of the Father. John eight twenty eight, Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. Lifting up the Son of Man, he is speaking of the future crucifixion. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Now let's talk about the, what it was like in the ancient world. Did women wear veils and head coverings in Greece and in Rome? Well, we have some different illustrations from ancient history and from archaeology and various, uh, various sculptures, various uh, paintings. Uh, in, the, in ancient Assyria, this goes back to about 1,000 B.C., so this is about the same time as King David, before uh, Assyria rose to be the evil, uh, tyrannical power that it was as an empire later on, uh, the, the veil signified ownership and proprietary rights over a woman. This is not a good thing. You have the same thing in Islam. Uh, this is too early to have any application in the New Testament era. Then you had Islamic customs. They're equally irrelevant because they're 700, 600, 700 years after the New Testament. 
And then there's evidence from the classical Greek period, 5th century B.C. And what we see when we look at paintings and portraits is, and uh, sculptures is that they had elegant hairstyles, but they did not have head coverings. There is an absence of head coverings. And so we must conclude just from that that uh, the Oriental women, that is those who are from the Middle East or Persia or um, Syria, they were veiled in public, but the Greek women were not. And then there are Roman customs. In Rome, men would cover their heads and women would let their hair down without any physical covering. When the Greeks mourned, the men would let their hair grow long and women cut theirs short. Some, uh, that's the custom among some Jewish men today. A few years ago, uh, a friend of mine who I have known since childhood uh, had a friend, close, very close friend die, and he did not cut his hair for a year. That's the first time I had seen that. Uh, that practice. He's Jewish. So generally, though, in uh, Greek and Roman culture, Roman society, uh, women had longer hair, but they kept it in some sort of uh, coil or bun or something of that nature. It was not loose and free-flowing. So this is important to see that when you go to, also you can look at these various terracotta uh, bowls and pottery in the museums and that's what you see for the for the hairstyles now in terms of what's been written about hairstyles according to Scipio Africanus in the late third and early second century BC Romans shaved off their beards and they wore short hair and you see that in various uh, Roman sculptures of of the Caesars they had short hair and that was also part of Greek culture since the days of Alexander the Great. Uh, the uh, only exception to that was philosophers, priests, peasants, and barbarians, according to Dio Chrysostom. In fact, philosophers attempted an argument that long hair was, the, was a mark of virtue, and Chrysostom criticized them for that. Men had distinctive short hairstyles. Another example is Pseudo-Phocilides, actually, a Hellenistic Jew wrote in 30 to 40 B.C. advising parents, do not let locks grow on his head, braid not his crown nor make cross knots. Long hair is not fit for men but for voluptuous women because many rage for intercourse with a man. So he connects immorality to men having long hair as part of the Greek culture. Now, culture didn't change as rapidly back then as it does today. You'd go two or three hundred years and nothing changed much. Also, Philo, the Jewish philosopher who lived in Alexandria, criticized the provocative men and saying they curl and dress their hair. So this, again, is a the, the hairstyle related to men who were cross-dressing and dressing in an effeminate style. So this gender-bending hairstyle issue was a subject of, also of Roman writers such as Juvenal, who depicted an all-male gathering in which some of the men, quote, filled a golden hairnet with prodigious locks. Horace, another Roman writer, referred disparagingly to a, quote, well-shaped youth whose long hair is tied in a knot, like a man bun. Okay, so this is a feminine, the Bible is pointing out there's clear feminine styles and masculine styles. Now, you can go too far with this. And some of these independent legalistic churches have done that, and I remember being somewhat shocked, and I don't shock easily. I do get shocked by legalism. And uh, I met a guy, when I returned to Dallas to work on my uh, doctorate, I met a guy who had, he was in his first year, uh, 
And he had come from an independent Baptist church in somewhere in the deep south, Alabama or Mississippi. And he told me that the last straw was when he was a youth pastor that they took a youth group uh, skiing in Colorado and the women had to wear dresses over their ski overalls. I thought that was just a little bit weird, a lot weird. Okay, in terms of Jewish customs, uh, the murals at a synagogue in Dura, which is a town that was uh, discovered in Syria, reveal a blending of Greek and Jewish themes in the murals, which means uh, they might not be a good source of information for purely Jewish customs. But a garment that is seen in the drawings in the Hamation, it's a long rect- is the Hamation. It's a long rectangular mantle draped over the body with the ends over the arm of the wearer. Epiphanius identifies that garment as that to which Jesus refers in Matthew 23, 5 in his remarks about uh, broad phylacteries that he's, he's being critical of the Pharisees and he's saying you have your broad phylacteries and you enlarge the borders of your garments. In the murals at Dura, the heroes have broad purple stripes on their robes while the lesser figures have more narrow stripes. So that helps understand what he meant by you enlarge the borders of your, uh, of your garments. The garment is called a tallit. Many of you have seen that when we've been in Israel. You'll see uh, the uh, Orthodox wearing their tallit, their prayer, um, their prayer shawl, and it's common in modern Judaism. And when the adult Jewish male prays, then he pulls the tallit up over his um, over his head so that he appears white before God. That is their rationale. But uh, what is going on here is that Paul is saying something completely different. He's saying every man praying or prophesying, uh, literally according to his head, dishonors his head. Now, it's interesting to go back and look at a couple of passages from the Old Testament regarding this. In Ezekiel 44, 18 uh, to 20, we have some uh, description of the, of the clothing and the garment of the, pe- of the priest. I'll just skip down for sake of time to verse 44, verse 20. Also, they shall not shave their heads. So priests were not to shave their heads, yet they shall not let their locks grow long. They shall only trim the hair of their heads. Now, the word for trimming is the Greek word kalupta when they translated it into the Septuagint. And that's the cognate to the word used in 1 Corinthians 11, kata kalupto. So they were not to... uh, they were only to trim their heads, not uh, shave their heads. In Leviticus thirteen forty-five, as for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered. It's akatakalutas. It's, it's not covered. It shall be shorn. So this word relates to a covering uh, and the hair as the covering. Numbers 5.18, the priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose and place the grain offering of the memorial, etc., etc. The Let the hair of the woman's head go loose is apocalypto, uh, meaning to reveal. So the woman's hair is uh, to go loose to, re, to, re, be a, uh, to reveal her. So this is all background. So the language that we see here in um, 1 Corinthians 11 is, is, has a strong background throughout the Old Testament. In verse 15 when we read, But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for covering. Now this is, I think, one of the key interpretive uh, verses. Because what it is saying is, 
Uh, it's a covering. It's a peribalion, which is a wrap or a covering. It's a first time covering is, tra- uh, a word is translated as covering. All of the others are catacalupto. But here it is saying, A, the woman has long hair. Long hair is the glory. The hair is given to her peri. That's the Greek um, preposition there, which is the preposition of substitution. There's hooper and peri are the two uh, words that are used to refer to the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And so her hair is a substitute for a shawl or a veil or a physical covering in a more strict translation. So I've translated this literally as at the bottom of the screen there, her hair has been given her in place of or to substitute for a veil. So I think it seems pretty clear from all of this that the, the words that are used relate to either not, uh, not shearing a man's head or uh, shearing a woman's hair, head and that the hair is the covering. You also have an example of this in Exodus uh, 28, uh, where the you have the situation with the high priest. Uh, you shall also make a plate of pure gold, shall engrave on it, like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord, uh, Kadash le Yahweh, and you shall fashion it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take away the iniquity by the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all the holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And you shall weave the tunic of checkered work of fine linen, and shall make a turban of fine linen. You shall make a sash, the work of a weaver, and for Aaron's sons shall make tunics. That's like the talit, the prayer cloth. And you shall also make sashes for them and shall make caps for them for glory and and for beauty. So if Paul is referencing the Jewish prayer shawl, then he's saying that the Jewish custom at his time disgraces God. And not only that, but it shows a rejection of the headgear that the priest was supposed to wear here in Exodus 28, uh, 37, um, 37 to 40. So if uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5 references a head covering such as a hat or a veil, then Paul was rejecting Jewish customs for men as an affront to God. See, so he's not talking about a covering like that. He's talking about hair. And because uh, if he was talking about the physical covenant, he would be rejecting what is said in the law. And he would also be imposing Jewish worship customs for women on Gentiles. Um, and it was a, noted a Palestinian custom to cover women. So if this is true, that is, if it's a physical covering, then how could Paul join in synagogue worship if he could not wear the talit. So the talit wasn't what it was all about. It wasn't the physical covering. It is about the hair. Conclusion. I just went through this. So bottom line is this. And the main point in this whole chapter is there's an important aspect about the hair that is a symbol of the of the man or the woman's view of authority and the lack of having the right kind of hairstyle for the man is a recognition of his submission to Christ's authority over him and the woman's long hair as a covering is her sign of the recognition of her husband as the authority over her and that this is because of the angels. The precedent for this is not culture, but it's God's created order. So that is very clear in 1 Corinthians 11, that the issue is how God created males and female with their appropriate um, roles. Next time we'll come back 
and look at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, where we'll see distinctions again between men and women in worship as well as uh, in the in the structure of the worship of the local church. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that there are protocols for worship, that it is not an opportunity just to come and do whatever we want, but that there are certain specific guidelines in Scripture of how we are to comport ourselves, how we are to present ourselves in our dress and in our our styles that conform or reflect the basic worldview presented in the Scripture. We pray that you would help us to reflect on these things, to understand them, and to recognize there is a harsh conflict between the way the Bible presents reality and how we are to think and live and how the world around us looks at reality and how we are to think and live. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.